0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Sci-Section. I'm Halima, your journalist for this week, and today we're honored to have David Shookman all the way from London, England. David is a British journalist, author, world explorer, and the very first science editor for the world-renowned BBC News. Thank you, David, for joining us.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: So I guess to begin, I understand that your career didn't really begin with science, but actually world affairs and politics. What was your early career like before being engulfed into the current really um, interesting role that you're doing right now?
1: Well, going further back, I'm actually a child of Apollo. I mean, I was 11 when Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the surface of the moon in 1969. And I cut out pictures and newspaper stories from magazines and papers and kept a scrapbook. And I was looking for it the other day and couldn't find it. It must have got chucked out in some house move over the years. But I was fascinated uh, by the technology, the, uh, the immense uh, inventiveness of the people who organized that whole mission and got those guys there and back again. Uh, obviously, incredibly impressed with the astronauts themselves. So that was like a, if you like, a little seed of science that, that if it got, me, got me going. And then you're absolutely right. Uh, various jobs uh, in the course of my career were not directly involved in science, but I found myself drawn that way. So, for example, I was covering the what we call the Troubles, which was a great period of violence in Northern Ireland uh, in the 80s. And, of course, there, there was an eavesdropping war. Surveillance technology was uh, incredibly important. There was, there was bomb technology. The, the terrorists were designing new kinds of weapons. The military were trying to overcome them. So, actually, there was a, a science thread there without me really thinking about that too much. And then when I um, moved on to a a job in defense, uh, covering military affairs, you might also think, well, that's a very long way from science. And I certainly, I wasn't thinking about science at all, but actually I found myself drawn to the cutting edge of military research. Obviously a huge amount of money, taxpayers money is spent on developing new weapons. And often the people who do that work aren't that well known. And I was very keen to delve into the laboratories, into the research centers to try and understand uh, what was going on there. So when eventually a proper science job came along, and I was thinking about it, uh, I I, I sort of dug back into into my life and realized that although I I definitely hadn't planned it, um, that was a science theme. Uh, running through
0: it absolutely and I think with all of the different um, traveling and things you did before you did um, science journalism I guess a lot of that interest must have peaked and I guess you mentioned that your fascination with science began after visiting a secret nuclear lab some time ago for those who may not be aware of that could you tell us about what that was and what really sparked your current passion
1: So yes, I was interested in military research and actually had the uh, great privilege to visit the Los Alamos nuclear laboratory in New Mexico, uh, where they did all the work on the first uh, atomic bombs. Uh, But I also had a great set of contacts in what was then the Soviet Union, uh, now is Russia. And it had always been very, very difficult for Western journalists to get access to anything like a nuclear research program in the United States. And it was a few years after the Chernobyl nuclear accident there, so things were very sensitive, but I, I had some good contacts there in Moscow. And after months of, uh, of trying, uh, uh, great persistence, not just by me, but by a, a fantastic translator, a fixer a friend in, in Moscow, we actually got access to one of the previously secret nuclear research centers uh, on the edge of Moscow. And it was an extraordinary time because this place was had been closed to Westerners for 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 decades. Uh, they'd never had a TV news crew come in from a Western country. So they weren't quite sure what to make of me and my cameraman. Uh, but they showed us around and a guy was allocated to to escort us. And as we were walking around the campus from building to building different experimental reactors, I realized he was carrying a little Geiger counter. He kept checking this the readings on this geiger counter and it suddenly occurred to me that, that he was actually quite nervous of, about the safety of his own facilities he didn't trust his own scientists after the chernobyl accident you know uh, when they say something safe is it really and one building we went into had sh- above the door a great big uh, electronic geiger counter thing that was broken so we thought well okay is it safe to go in and he was checking his geiger counter and we walked in we were taken into this reactor, and it was an amazing uh, scene with these guys in white suits, and and they were moving the uh, the cooling rods around, and, and and actually, to me, it looked pretty ropey, quite scary, and um, I, I didn't feel safe. And I asked the escort, "Well, what's your Geiger counter saying?" And it had gone to zero. Uh, so I mean, obviously, it was overloaded, it was broken, or whatever. But what 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 I loved was the fact that. Here we were, this was, at that point, still a science superpower. And here we were, and, and they were the scientists were short of money. Um, they didn't have any of the computers that, that we had in the West, um, yet they were carrying on their work very diligently. They, they loved it when I asked for interviews, they wanted to talk about what they were doing. And, you know, despite the terrible conditions and the possible dangers and the lack of funding and there were light bulbs missing in the corridors and, and all the rest of it. What I loved, and this story is a long way to answer your question, is I loved their passion. You know, they, they were just, these guys were really, really emotional about their work, what they were discovering, what they were trying to find out, the questions they were framing. And um, an interest of science is, is a passion, a, a, a drive and curiosity to to ask questions, to, to, to find out how to answer a question. And mm-hmm. um, so that, that stuck with me for a very long time. And um, I guess confirmed my, my fascination with the way scientists think. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I realized I, I kind of liked being around them. and and kind of wanted more of that.
0: Absolutely, so would you say that that moment where um, meeting the people from the nuclear lab and were able to see the passion that emanated from them talking about the work was really pivotal in your career and kind of establishing your place in the science world and where you wanted to go from there?
1: Well, I think that uh, there's a terrible division in society between people who uh, understand science, love science, see the value of science, And people who who may see the value, but just don't get it. Mm -hmm. They just don't understand what people are talking about. Uh, They don't like the terminology. They find it off-putting. They don't find the way that scientists express themselves uh, comprehensible. There's a kind of barrier. Even the most well-intentioned people quite quickly reach in their exploration of science. I mean, people are, are gripped, aren't they, by space exploration or you know, what do we know about this coronavirus or um, kind of really what's going to happen with the climate as we keep adding carbon emissions. As soon as a scientist, in many cases, obviously there are incredible exceptions, but in many cases, if you ask a scientist a direct question about, about any of those fields, you might well get answers that, that many people in the public wouldn't really get, wouldn't feel comfortable with and... and Uh, they they, they may be sympathetic to the scientist and they may desperately want to understand, but uh, uh, would they get it? And and, uh, as far as I think science journalism plays a a potentially useful role as a kind of interpreter. If I don't get it and and I I read a lot of science and I spend time with scientists and I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I, as I've explained, I, I like the way they think, and, and uh, I think I've become a, a, a reasonable judge of, of scientific papers and, and, and work and so forth. But I think it's critically important that as many people as possible get a chance to have a clear explanation of, of what's happening. You know, there was this amazing moment some years ago when, at the Large Hadron Collider, the particle accelerator in Geneva at CERN, you know, they they made this amazing discovery of the Higgs boson, this theoretical particle that gives other particles mass. And that had been dreamt up as a theory 60 years before. Actually, the machine worked and they found this thing. Now, temptation would be for an editor of a, a, an evening news program of a, of a popular newspaper, kind of not to bother. You know, it's quite complicated. What's that all about, this thing? It's so weird. And uh, I was delighted that my editors were, were keen to try, you know, to, on, on, the, on the main evening news, along with stories about crime and politics and, and sport, there's an item about the discovery of the, the Higgs boson. And, and I think that the, the burden is on us science journalists to find ways of making it clear. You know, I think uh, it's no good us saying, well, I'm not sure it's a bit difficult, you know, how are going to explain that? I think we really have to sweat Mm-hmm. Um, and we do, <laughs> to try and find language that, and, and, and visuals and whatever analogies uh, to, to, to make it clear. But I think it's a pivotal role because we're at a point in, 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 our, in our lives where, where science is so important, but so often not understood. Um, and I think that, that's my passion.
0: Absolutely. So as a science editor and also a science journalist, um, I guess it's definitely not a position or a career many people are really aware of that exists. So I guess from your day-to-day work, what does it look like?
1: I'm a journalist. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a science journalist. The, the title, uh, some would say it's a bit overblown, um, that there's been a bit of job inflation, job title inflation. Um, th- there was a feeling, you know, we had a, a political editor, we had an economics editor, a business editor. Uh, oh. we, we had a Middle East editor. Uh, there was a big push for, for our coverage of science to be Given a similar status within the newsroom, uh, and as a signal to our audiences that we're taking it seriously, so after uh, uh, many years and a long discussion, they they did create this post, and I was fortunate enough to to, to get it. Uh, and I think I think it was a I mean it's obviously positive for me, but I, I, I think it sent a signal that that the BBC was well, it had always taken science seriously, but it was in the news world, it, it was giving it a new emphasis and. I I gather from, from people in the world of science that that was appreciated. Um, But I'm I'm not alone. I mean, we have a fantastic team. And uh, so I'm, I'm one of uh, one of that team, but I, I just happen to have the grand title.
0: Absolutely. That's amazing. And I think with the work that you do, you've had the opportunity to travel to the Antarctica, the Amazon, really some of the coolest places on earth. So with all of the journeys that you've had filming documentaries and things like that for BBC, what has been your favorite trip?
1: Well, I think it has to be one that took place actually in Canada. Really? Yeah, yeah. uh, And I'm not just saying it. um, Back in 2007, the European Space Agency satellites were were keeping track of the, the, the Arctic ice, which melts in the summer and regrows in the winter, but with a steady decline in the last 30 years. And they spotted that the Northwest Passage, that sea route that links the Atlantic to the Beaufort Sea and then the Pacific, was clear of ice for the first Mm. time in the satellite record. And uh, I I was kind of mesmerized by this idea, uh, because I'd read about the history of all the expeditions that had tried to get through and so forth. Uh, Many of them, Royal Navy and the Brits had had thrown resources at trying to find this passage, and and many of them died trying to do so. So there's a kind of an emotional connection for Brits and a romance about it all. Plus, of course, the profound implications with global warming and, and what's happening. But an editor of mine said, you've got to go. And uh, a colleague I worked with, a producer, was incredibly fortunate. He was ringing around and talked to a, the, the science lead of an expedition on a Canadian Coast Guard. Uh, we got on board, we, we joined at Resolute in the high, far north of Canada. Uh, we had a week on board, sailing, through waters were open and uh i found it incredibly moving i mean the ships company were amazing the, the as a, a woman captain who was, couldn't have been more helpful the, the scientists were amazing we did a flight on a helicopter we went out on the boats we did all the science it was uh it was incredible the access we got and and we loved them all to bits um but there was this feeling of we're sailing through waters where you know, a lot of people have died trying to, mm-hmm. trying to find a path through this wilderness. And now, as the world gets hotter, you know, I'm on a centrally heated ship just sailing through. And uh, they let us off. Once we'd come through the main part of the passage, we were, we were let off. And uh, the three of us got to a little hotel. And, and I, I don't mind admitting we were a bit tearful. We, we felt homesick for the ship, you know, because we'd been so sort of tight with everybody and uh, had such an amazing experience. So that that for me is just you know by miles the uh the, the, the favorite experience, and then the journey back to to the u k mm-hmm. as you encounter more and more people kind of more and more buildings was was quite a shock to the I went to a shopping mall in Edmonton on our way home and i i I was overwhelmed by people and uh, but i it, it reminded me of just how how powerful impression an impression mm-hmm. had been made by by that voyage through the Canadian Arctic uh, at a time of great change. And to be a witness of such profound change was, was amazing as well.
0: So absolutely with these amazing trips that you're going on all the time with the work that you do, you obviously might feel some pressure, you know, you're informing the public about important subjects. And, um, with that you have to always make sure the science is accurate and journalism. There's always so many issues with that in general, people, Mm -hmm. um, feeling dishonest about where they're getting the news from now with science and the coronavirus. And it's really just a big um, clash between the world, science, news, journalism, everything. So I think I wanted to ask, how do you kind of deal with these challenges and that kind of immense pressure?
1: So I think the the, the key thing has to be a foundation of understanding where the best science lies. Where does the sense of science lie on a particular issue? And and that stems from uh, uh, published papers, Um, teams of scientists around the world investigating issues, uh, 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 sending their work to journals. It's scrutinized by them. It's scrutinized by peer reviewers. Uh, It gets then published maybe uh, we then see it. Um, now. N- none of those steps are guarantees against falsehood or, or, or cheating or, or uh, a misinterpretation of results. Um, but they, they are hurdles that have to be crossed. So but by and large, I feel happier reporting on a topic when I know that there's peer-reviewed published science um, underpinning it. And uh, preferably with a large sample size. Um, as a colleague of mine once said, you know, if there's an overexcited press release announcing a cure for cancer, and you look at the small print and you realize they tested some drug on a couple of mice, mice over a long weekend, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that doesn't meet the standard of is it a nice big sample size? And is it over a long period? So if you see a study that involves 10,000 people over 10 years, um, and it's uh it's by you know reputable people from uh, from from good research centers that that's going to give you more confidence and i, I think what if you're across kind of where, where where the science lies uh and then reflect that in the broadcasting i like to think that that's a reasonable offering to the public uh, we get i get personally bombarded but with critics saying don't you realize there's hardly any carbon dioxide as a proportion of the atmosphere. How can it possibly influence the the, 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 the climate? I, I get, I mean, I get everything. I get the flat earthers. I get, um, the, the Apollo hoax blander people, um, the coronavirus people, that it's all a hoax, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, you know, and, and, and the answer I, I think for any science journalist has to be is what is the science saying? Where is it strong? Where is it weak? How do you, portray the strength of the evidence in the in the reporting and if if people you know watch a broadcast or 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 read something you you, you've just got to hope that you've done your job so that they come away with uh, with an accurate understanding of of kind of where things are you know we, we we we're sure about this but we don't really know this you know um, so I think that's the, the best way to do it. But it, it does come back to those very basic things which, which anyone in science will, will be familiar with or horribly familiar with if they're a researcher trying to get published, you know, but I think that those hurdles are a, a, a useful set of, of guides to 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 what how we might reflect
0: a subject. Mm-hmm. And I guess for people like myself who love the literary communicative aspect of being a journalist, but then also, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, love that inquiry involved in science. What is your advice to somebody who kind of wants to get involved with both? Because I think you definitely have the dream job in, involved with that.
1: <laughs> well, I, I know I'm lucky. I, I would always tell people, uh, and this is partly a reflection of age. In, in my day, when I started in journalism on a local newspaper, I had an undergraduate degree in geography, right? And, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, which had elements of science in it, but, but th- I, I didn't do a journalism degree. And, and nearly everybody, actually, in, in my generation in journalism didn't do a journalism degree. Now, I know there are some terrific journalism degrees available in many places, I'm sure in Canada as well. And for many people, that might be the way to go. But if you're wondering about, the fork in the road of science or journalism in terms of studies. If you study science, I would say you can always then become a journalist. Mm -hmm. You could even do a bit of journalism during your science. If you study journalism, I don't see how you then get into science. So if you're either undecided or interested in both, uh, I'd pick the science degree.
0: Absolutely. It definitely was. And on that note, we'd like to thank you so much, David, for joining us here today and telling us all about the amazing work that you do. Don't forget to check out David's amazing work on BBC.
1: Thank you very much indeed.